The New Testament reading from which the sermon text is taken comes from John chapter 19, beginning in verse 17. And the sermon text will begin in verse 28. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the to the place called the place of the skull, which is in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamlessly woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures which say, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. When, then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's go now to our God in prayer. Oh, Father, we gather together this evening, and we gather together as those who are your people whom you have bought for a price, even through the very death of Christ that we look at more particularly this evening. Father, we ask that you would continue to guide our minds and our hearts to uh, ponder the things that you have done on our behalf. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, indeed that you would uh, uh, cause your word to go forth even this very hour and to accomplish all that you have set out for it to do. May it not return empty and void. And Father, we pray that you would turn our eyes very clearly to the one in whom the bulls of Bashan encircled, and Father, whom the enemies of God surrounded and lowered into the pit. Lord, we ask that you would guide the remainder of this time we have together as we await your resurrection. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but uh, occasionally there are things that I come across that I don't understand and probably never will. Um, no matter how hard I try, 
There are certain things you cannot wrap your mind around, why it exists, what purpose it serves. Uh, you know, disco is one of those for me. Why it was cool or uh, uh, the purpose of it, I'll never understand. My parents get it, um, but I don't and never will. Why mustaches have come back into style or, or when they were, uh, um, why they've become suddenly cool again, I don't think I'll ever understand. But occasionally, the same thing happens when I read the scriptures. You know, why does scripture include certain accounts and not others? You know, puzzling accounts like David killing the messengers who declared Saul is dead. Or the passage where Peter says baptism saves you. What does that mean? How do we understand it? Or the accounts of Lot with his daughters or Judah with Tamar. These difficult texts that are puzzles that uh, we may not understand them reading through them the first time. Or things that uh, 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 scripture gives much attention to that are seemingly insignificant details, details about furniture and the tabernacle or the temple, why these things are here and why so much detail is given to them and not to other things. Well, this evening we come to a text that it never makes the top 10 list of those difficult passages of scripture, of texts that people do not quite understand. It's not a text where we question why it's here or why it's significant. Our text seems plain and clear enough, especially as you look in at these last three verses, it's often assumed, you know, in verse 28 through 30, you know, Jesus got thirsty, and so he told the soldiers, and it appears to carry no more weight to it than that at all. Well, John recorded this because it happened and for no other reason, and yet there's some difficulty with explaining it in that way. Scripture doesn't record everything that Jesus happens to do or say. John 21 tells us this. Many things were recorded or many things happened that Jesus did. And were every one of them written, the world itself could not contain the books with the things that Jesus had done. In other words, it teaches that some things have been excluded even in the very writings of the Gospels and in the book of John itself. And some things were not important enough to make it. And yet these three verses are here about Jesus growing thirsty and being given sour wine. Why? Why are they significant? They weren't randomly chosen. They aren't just for historical data. They have been put here very selectively and intentionally included for a specific reason. The question is, what is that purpose? Why include this detail about Christ dying when he, or about Christ, the dying Christ who grows thirsty, why is this so important that he speak these words, I thirst? Again, is it a useless, random piece of information? Is it just a tidbit that we should have for quizzing one another? The question is, what purpose does it serve to share this with God's people? But if we're going to understand the reason that these few verses are here, we're going to have to explore Jesus' thirst. Jesus' thirst. Our text opens up and we find Jesus on the cross. Well, he is very near the end of his life. I mean, this is it. His life literally hangs by a thread. Almost everything that Jesus will ever do in this life has been literally completed. Very little remains of his time here upon this earth. Very little remains for him to do. And yet, even in these last few moments, Jesus has works to do upon the cross. And that is exactly what he is doing as he hangs there. 
Christ, knowing the estate that he's in, knowing that death is approaching, knowing all is almost now finished, knowing all of this, says these words, I thirst. Again, the question is why? Why these words? Simply because he needs relief? Has he undergone, he has undergone horrific torture, and now he is looking for a moment of refreshment or respite from it to relieve him from the pain? Or is there something more significant, more important going on here? Well, Scripture answers this question for us. Jesus isn't looking for relief from the pain. It's not, he is not looking for respite. Matthew 27 speaks against this idea. Before he's crucified, before he is hung on the cross, he is offered wine mixed with gall. And it's, the idea is it is a drugged mixture to dull the senses, to make the pain that you will undergo as you're being crucified more bearable more tolerable. And yet in Matthew 27, Christ refuses this relief. He would not drink it because he has work to do. This is work before him. He must stay focused. And so if that is the case, if right at the, from the outside, Christ is not suddenly looking for escape from the pains of death that are upon him, why would he look for relief now? He knows he is about to die. He knows his flesh is fading He knows all was finished. He knows this is the end. Why ask now? What is it that Christ is drawing our attention to? What is it about his thirst? Like many things that happen in Jesus' life, the Old Testament illuminates what Christ is doing here. The Old Testament often speaks about thirst. It often speaks about this condition of being thirsty. And when it speaks, when the Old Testament speaks, it speaks about thirst as being part of the curse. Thirst comes from the absence of water. The Old Testament plays in this all over the place. Water is considered a blessing from God, and its absence is considered cursing. When God speaks of blessing the people as they enter enter the land of Israel in Deuteronomy 8, He says, you will enter a land that is filled with streams of water, fountains and springs flowing with good water. Language of the blessings of God are included upon these people. Streams of living water will be abundant for these people as they enter into the promised land. Psalm 42 says that as a deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you, O God, O you for the living God. Again, the ideal is when we commune with God, it is like drinking from a stream of water. It is something that brings life. And then you see the same idea in Jeremiah chapter 2 when God says, My people forsake the fountain of living water for broken cisterns that hold no water. And here it's clear the idea is that God holds the blessings of life and that life and blessing is communicated in water, in the imagery of water. And then thirsting no more. And the reverse is true as well throughout the scriptures. Israel, when they are brought out of Egypt, the people complain to Moses saying, Did you bring us out to the desert to die? For we have no water to drink. And it's very clear. The image is, is God cursing us here? Did he bring us out to curse us and leave us in this abandoned or in this vast wasteland? Has he abandoned his people? Or you come to a place like Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 and 48, a passage about blessings and cursing specifically. And it says, if Israel does not serve the Lord, 
Then the Lord will send enemies against them and they will hunger and thirst and be naked and lack everything. They won't even have basic needs, but you will long for a drop of water to cool your tongue. Reminds you of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. Lazarus in torture, in the pains of hell, undergoing the curse of God, literally, says to Abraham, send Lazarus that he might dip his finger in water to cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame, one drop to quench my thirst, to ease this curse upon me. Clearly, thirst is an image used throughout the whole of the Bible to show God's cursing and indeed even his judgment. And that is exactly what Jesus is undergoing in his flesh and blood when he says, I thirst. All the members of Christ's body, all the parts of his physical body, he bears within his flesh the curse of God's wrath, the wrath of God against sin. You know, Jesus truly thirsts here and he thirsts bodily. His flesh is in torment and he thirsts. And as he experiences the curse of God against sin in his flesh, he has, we need to understand he is doing all of this in order to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus thirsts in order to fulfill the scriptures. In other words, Jesus isn't just saying these words. You know, Christ truly does thirst here. And in his thirsting, scripture is being fulfilled. He is actually fulfilling the prophecies of his thirsting and undergoing the curse of God's wrath for, in his flesh for our sins. For what does the scripture say about the thirst of the Messiah? Psalm 22, a psalm from which we read, it tells us that when Christ is poured out as an offering and evildoers encircle him as his hands and feet are pierced when lots are cast for his garment. Verse 15 tells us, my tongue sticks to my jaws. Part of the prophecy of Christ's death is in fact his thirst. Christ speaks, cluing us in in such a way that he is fulfilling all of the scriptures. Even in this last moment in these words saying, I thirst. Not one part of the scriptures are being undone or left unfulfilled. All the pieces of the puzzle are being put together in him. In Psalm 69, that text we read tonight, as Christ is coming under the waters of judgment, as he is sinking into the mire and deep waters, as he is in his darkest hour, verse 21 tells us that his enemies give him poison for food and for my thirst, sour wine to drink. And surely, that is what we see happen in John, isn't it? Evildoers come and they are encircling him, those who despise him and revile him and hate him. And when he asks for his drink, he has served a cold dish instead. They pour sour wine and a sponge for him to drink. Scripture doesn't specify why it is. The sour wine is kept at a crucifixion. It tells us that it was laying there on the ground and there are many speculations about this wine that is given. Some believe it is to prolong life and increase the torture. That is, in fact, a further torture. Or as others consider it a cleansing material. The bottom line is scripture doesn't tell us, but it does tell us it is an act of cruelty. Is it an act to mock our Savior? He thirsts for water, 
And he, given, he is given vinegar or sour wine. You can just imagine what it would be like to drink vinegar when you thirst and only cool and clear water will quench it for you. And yet, by so doing, by receiving this, by offering this sour wine or vinegar, these men, these evildoers who encircled the Christ indeed fulfill the scriptures, serving a dish of evil to the crucified Son of God. And Christ himself fulfills all of the scriptures in these texts here, even to the most minute prophecy. And by so doing, Christ's thirst fulfills all righteousness. Christ's thirst fulfills all righteousness. Verse 30 tells us that the or text ends, excuse me, and Christ, we see, he comes to the end of his life. He gives up his spirit. And it says, the words were, it is finished. Or another way of saying it, another way of reading it in the Greek is it has been fulfilled. For something to be fulfilled, it means that an obligation or a demand was carried out or kept All was fulfilled. Christ has finished all that was required. That word is used three times in these verses. In three verses, it highlights its importance, knowing that all was fulfilled. In order to fulfill the scriptures, it is finished or it is fulfilled. And Christ is fulfilling all of scripture by these actions and that he is doing in it, he is doing two things. One, he is fulfilling the obligations of the law. All that the law of God requires, even in his dying, he is living it and doing so perfectly. In his receiving the wine on our behalf perfectly without grumbling or complaint. And he's also undergoing the wrath of God against lawbreakers. He is undergoing the curse. Both of these are before us. His thirst showing that he has taken the curse of the law, the wrath of God against our sins upon himself. Christ himself is wasting away, literally physically wasting away, as though he is wandering in a barren desert. He is in the valley of the dry bones in a cursed land where there is no water. And he is brought into a desert to die. There's no bubbling brook here, only the cup of God's wrath being poured out upon him. For Christ is undergoing the punishment of sin and the curse that should be ours. He bears them up in his body, in his very flesh. He experiences death. He tastes death and the curse of God and his wrath. He is feeling the full weight of God's punishment for sin. And he feels it within the bounds of his own body. The unmitigated wrath of God against sinners. And now as he ends, now that all has been fulfilled, he gives up his spirit, dying the death of a cursed man who is hanged upon a tree. And what that means, people of God, is that in three days' time, when he will rise again, it means that Christ has defeated here, in this very text, all the enemies of God. He has defeated sin. He is defeating death itself by taking it upon himself. For although by one man came death into the world, so now by Christ undergoing the pains of death and curse of God for our sins, he brings forth new life. He undergoes the curse of the law, paying the penalties 
of the law, dying with a parched tongue so that you, people of God, so that you could drink from him living waters. Here in Christ is the great reversal of what has just happened on the cross. Jesus undergoes the curse of sin spoken of as a thirst, yet he tells us, or he says to us, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. People of God, Christ quenches the thirst that is brought upon us through the curse. He vanquishes the curse of thirst itself. All who are found in him, their thirst indeed will be quenched. The wrath of God, the curse upon man for his sin has been uh, quenched in his thirsting and in his dying on this day. And Revelation 7, 16 and 17 makes it clear what that means for those who are in Christ. When they dwell with Christ in glory, they shall no longer hunger or thirst. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, and he will be their shepherd. No more will sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing known, flow as far as the curse is found. People of God, Christ came, and he came to bear the curse of sin for us. And by so doing, he has freed us from the very curse of sin that was ours to bear. The heavy load has fallen from our back because it fell on his. May we drink deeply of Christ, who is the fountain of living water. May we know that we are free to hunger and thirst after righteousness for his sake. For he has set us free from the laws of sin and death and vanquished all the enemies of the people of God. People of God, come. Come to him who is the living water. Come, you who have no money, nothing to offer. Come, buy and drink. And as we drink of Christ, as we become partakers of him by faith in his death and his resurrection by, to bring us salvation, may we too hunger and thirst after righteousness. For this is our reasonable service. May we free the, flee the broken cisterns of our idolatrous hearts, for they will never quench our thirst. They will never satisfy. May we flee to the one who drank from the dregs the judgment of God against sin in order to bring his people to the streams of living water. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Lord, we come before you. We are undone, for we see one who was a perfect sacrifice, one who is the very Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, this one who this night bore the sins of your people upon the cross, who was hanged, who became a man cursed in order that you might bring life. Father, we pray that you would turn our eyes to him, May we never lose sight of who we are in Christ and what he has done and accomplished on our behalf. Father, we ask that you would uh, continue to uh, uh, um, draw us ever nearer to yourself by turning us and seeing the penalty that you have paid on our behalf, the penalty that we so rightly deserve. 
And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.